Who owns your labor? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Boss van der Vossen. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Boss van der Vossen. Boss is an associate professor in the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy, as well as the philosophy department at Chapman University. His research focuses on questions of political philosophy, primarily of political economy, global justice, and the Lockean theory of property rights. He also writes about the ethics of political activism in the academy and is an associate editor of Politics, Philosophy, and Economics and Social Philosophy and Policy. Boss, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Boss, our question today is, who owns your labor? And that's kind of a fun turn of phrase to get us into a bigger conversation on discussion of, on the ideas that help us sort out ownership and so on. So before we jump right into too many details or right into the meat of the matter, I want to start with something that you actually point out in your writing, that in any larger theory of property rights must provide, one, an account of why property rights of some kind are morally justified, and two, provide the means of establishing legitimacy of the given particular holdings of people at a given time, or for short, an element of justification and individuation. Let's start there and start walking into your thought process, and I think that's a good place to start. When we talk about any larger theory of property rights, why do we have to keep both these things in mind? Why are these important to you and other thinkers to have this balanced and uh, these two critical elements of justification and individuation? The thought there is that that I was trying to express in that passage that you read out is that there is um, one big question about ownership rights or property rights, which is, is it a good idea for people to be able to claim things as theirs and theirs alone so that other people can't use it? Stuff is scarce in the world. We like to have stuff to use and to help us live and so on. And so lots of this stuff I cannot use because other people claim it as their own and I'm supposed to respect this. And so one question, that's the first sort of general justification question is like, is that a good idea at all? Right. Now, suppose we say yes to that. We have some, some story that's convincing so that we think, yeah, it actually is a good idea that we don't all get to use everything at the same time. So that still doesn't show that what, that I myself own my particular house or car or something. Right? So that doesn't establish any connection between an individual person and a particular thing. And so that's the, that's the second step, which is this individuation thing. So the idea that I was trying to express there is you need both of those steps. You need to first have a good story that it's a good idea for people to have things as their own. But then also you need to be able to have some type of story about how, how can particular people come to own particular things so that within that overall system, you have a right to this thing. And that means that I cannot use that particular thing without asking your permission. No, I think that I thought it was very interesting, even for myself to read, because I find that in, in many of the circles that, you know, I have discussions in and things like that, or just observe the way other people talk about these things casually. It seems that they're often most focused on that element of the individuation, actually. People are often very, here's how we can tell who owns what. Uh, a lot of people have some, some, some great ideas about that, uh, especially like in Broadly speaking, you could say like libertarian circles, especially in North America, like a lot of people have different ideas on how property rights can can be looked upon. But it seems that 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 over that justification element on the front end that you say also needs to be there. T to me, it seems like there isn't as much attention paid to that, at least in, in casual discussion on this. Yeah. And I think there's some uh, intuitive arguments that I'm sure we'll get to. But some intuitive arguments are they obscure that distinction, right? Because they do right. both tricks at the same time. Exactly. 
so this idea for example like well why do i why do i have a right over my over the pay that my employer chapman university pays me and not you well it's because i worked for it right that's kind of like an intuitive answer um and so that might be a, a, an answer that answers both these questions at the same time, which is like the fact that people work for things is what justifies them having a right over. It. And then what they work for is, of course, the thing that they have a right over. And so you get both at the same time. But that's not necessarily so. For example, if you give like a utilitarian type answer to what why ownership is a good idea, because it's uh, generally you know it's good for the general welfare of the country or something. We we get a lot of prosperity. Countries that protect property rights do much better. Than, than countries that don't, those kind of stories. That's a general story about that. We should have some type of system here, but that doesn't tell you anything about the details or the particulars of that system. Who owns what? What exactly are the contours of these rights, et cetera? And so and it depends really on what kind of arguments you find convincing, whether or not you need two separate theories or just one. But because one, because often people think they're like something like that Lockean story of like, I, I worked for it, is convincing. You can lose sight that the two questions really are at play here. So let's get into a couple more details here as, as we go through that thought process. But before I, I start, I just want to do a bit, bit of a sort of terminology clarification because I'm sure you'll, you'll as I ask you questions, you'll probably be talking through and use, use these. So um, on the one hand, historical entitlement, and on the other hand, original acts of appropriation. Can you talk a bit about both of those and how, what we should keep in mind moving forward in this conversation? Yeah, good. So the historical entitlement theory is a theory of of justice, at least when it comes like distributive justice. So what that theory said, the theory is most famously associated with Robert Nozick, of course. And Nozick's theory says, well, what do people have a right to like out, like out in the real world? Well, they have a right to the things that they acquired in a legitimate or just manner. Now, the most typical way in which in our society that happens is that you, you bought it from someone, right? Or you uh, had some type of contract that you performed the service and then they paid you money in return. Or maybe you were gift you were given it in a in a gift or an inheritance or something like that. And so that would be one way, a legitimate way of acquiring things. So why do I own my car? Well, because I paid for it. <laughs> that's the that's the story. So something happened in the past and it was a legitimate transfer, and so now the car is mine. Of course, that story pushes us back to, well, in the case of my car, like eight years ago or something like that. Right. right? But then there's a question before that. It's like, well, how did the dealership get to own that car because if they stole it then maybe they couldn't give me a right to the car because they were just transferring me stolen goods rather than a legitimate property so we just go we just go back one step right which is like how did that earlier step get to be legitimate if you say well that because they also had a legitimate transfer well we have to ask for one more one step further back right and so you can keep going all all at some point you're going to have to hit like a stopping point where the very first acquisition was a legitimate one and so that's the second part of what you were talking about, that you need to have an original act of acquisition or appropriation, which is sometime long ago, at least in theory, it must have been possible um, for people to create things that were there when prior to that, things were not theirs. They were unowned or something like that. Now, most people who believe in this historical entitlement view, which I include myself under, um, most people don't think that the, I own my car now because if I just go back far enough in history, I can find some some time when the when all the sort of raw materials that went into the car were all all legitimately originally acquired, 
we know the world is full of injustice. Right, right. right. Probably at some point something nefarious happened. However, that doesn't necessarily um, undercut the theory, we think, because, well, first, for one, these injustices, they call for some type of rectification. Why do they call for rectification? Well, because the idea of a just transfer is this historical one. So that's it. And so when we talk about original acts of acquisition, we're mostly talking about them not as not to prove that my actual car came from the ground at one point in a legitimate manner, but rather to show that actually this theory makes sense. And so this is a possible story. And then if it's a possible story that actually is convincing, then we can use that as the reference point to actually correct the injustices that we see around us in the world and say, we should in some, with some way of thinking about what justice would be, get closer to it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not like there's this sort of cartoon train of thought happening where, as you said, you have to, especially in a car, which is a really good example, all the different elements and things that, that go into that. You not have to make sure every piece of rubber, right. every piece of metal going into it was not only historically, if you will, uh, transfers happen justifiably, but but originally at the beginning of, of time justifiable. No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, let's take that and jump into um, some different ideas about ownership. Uh, and so we could talk about the Lockean one first, and then maybe into some com- competing ideas with that. So, so let's do that. I would I would like you to present the standard reading on the Lockean view of property ownership and origin of ownership. Yeah. So so Locke, I, I'm sure most, uh, if not all of our li- listeners will know, is an English philosopher, um, late 17th century. He publishes his major uh, work in political philosophy. It's not not the only thing he did. He many philosophical contributions, but the political philosophy one is, is one, one of the more famous ones, um, called the Two Treatises of Government. In the second treatise, which is really Locke's own, th- own proposal, um, he has a chapter, chapter five, on property, of property. Um, and there he uh, gives his, his theory of what property rights look, look like, or what just or legitimate property rights look like. Now, the context in which Locke is working is He's giving a story about the social contract theory of government and the rights of government. And Locke's, probably Locke's theory is the point of government is to protect our rights, to make us more secure in our rights, and so give us more freedom than we would have without a government. Well, if you stay, stay, say that, if you tell that story, then you need to have some sort of idea of what, are our, what our rights are, independent of whether a government exists or not. And so he thinks property is one one among those types of rights. So that's what the point of the chapter is in that overall work is to have to show actually the things that you own are among the rights that the government's job is to protect. It's not that property is like a government creation or something that's just social and can be rearranged or redistributed at will as the as the majority decides. And so no, says Locke, these are your individual rights and the point of a government is to protect them. So how does he do that? Well, he says, well, imagine then that you just in a world in which nothing is owned, so we go back to this imaginary original acquisition case, just to show how the how this historical view gets off the ground. He says, imagine that there's nothing owned in the in, in the whole world. How might you actually acquire something? And so the standard so he gives a, several arguments in this chapter, and the standard reading, which we were asking about, um, focuses on on one particularly clear argument that he offers, um, which is a, called the labor mixing argument. So Locke says, well, you own yourself. And by owning, he just means you have a right to exclude other people from it. That's really what he talks about. 
So you, you own yourself because, well, I can tell you not to use my body against my will or not to harm me against my will. And so, so we accept that. And he says, well, the stuff is unowned. But if I own myself, I also own my labor. And when I work on things, for example, here's a piece of land that is completely unused and I start plowing it and I put a fence up and I build a farm out of it and grow crops and so on. What I've done is I've mixed my labor with this land, made it more productive. If you now come by and you say, hey, here's some, uh, here's some nice uh, fruits, like some, look at these tomatoes, let me just eat these. And so I can tell you legitimately, no, you don't. Yeah, I can exclude you from these tomatoes for the very same reason that I can exclude you from my body. Namely, I've mixed something that I already owned, namely my labor, with these resources, the land, the plants, and so on. And so now, if you, steal, if you take the tomato, you're really taking my labor. And the labor was mine. And so here's the story. I own myself, therefore I own my labor. I've mixed my labor with these, with these materials. And therefore, I own the materials. Right. And I think uh, I'm actually I can't recall right now if it was one of your articles or not. But but I remember, you know, reading the idea that, of course, this brings up some sort of debates in some circles, at least thought experiments. It's like, well, well how much mixing is required? You know, like mm-hmm. when we think about this, I'm not sure if you want to get into that a bit. But uh, as, as you said, he was presenting an, an argument uh, to, to make a point about something. But of course, you know, you're always going to get that person to say, well, well, what what is uh, what qualifies as labor when you mix it? Right. Is, is it when you when you plant the tree and pick the apple? Is it when you just reach up and take the apple? That's an interesting thing too, I think. Yeah, Locke addresses some of that himself. So he has a passage in which he says, you know, what, well, so what constitutes labor mixing? And then, and he goes to this thought experiment where he says, well, clearly he uses acorns as an example, which I don't know if people ate acorns again at the time, but <laughs> let's use the apple again. Um, so, you know, once the apple is digested, he says, clearly it has to be mine. Because at this point, it's just absorbed into my body. And we've already assumed that I own my body. So now it's part of my body. So since I own my body, I must own the apple. So what about one step before, right? When it's just sitting in my stomach? Well, the only way you can get to it is cutting over my body, which I own. So you can't do that, right? What if I'm chewing it? Well, pretty clearly it's mine when I'm chewing it. What if I'm cooking it, right? And he goes all the way through to the, says the, to the initial moment of picking it up from the ground or picking it from the tree. And he says, well, if I think like, what's the only natural place to draw the line between it being mine and not, it's not, the, the line is not drawn between the pot in which I'm cooking it and, my, and me putting it in my mouth. That's not a natural place to put it on. It's not between the cutting board and going in the pot, right? It's not between being in the basket and going on the cutting board. The only natural spot to draw the line is between it being on the tree or on the ground and me taking it into my possession. So that, he says, is then is the, is the labor mixing. One of the worries, of course, is that, well, if merely picking up an acorn from the ground counts as mixing your labor, it's hard to get that story that I was tell- telling a second ago of the ground. Namely, whenever you pick the, you know, take the acorn from me, you're really stealing my labor. That's a plausible story when I've built a whole farm and I've you know, cultivated these crops and so on. And so like, you, the tomato wouldn't be there, but for me working to create it. And so you would really take that my labor in that sense. But if I just picked up the, the acorn, I just moved it from the ground into the basket. And so now you reach into my basket. Can I still say, well, you're just, you're stealing my labor, man. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, it sounds a little hysterical, right? It's not, not true in the same way, it seems. So that's one source where these objections that you were referring to come from. 
Right. And actually, that's a great segue. That was going to basically be my next question is that other other than that point where you said where that starts to if you put it that way, that starts to sound a little hysterical. I just wanted to ask you about uh, based on that reading of it that you just outlined, what are some, you know, usual objections? And, and as you said, in some of your, your papers too, that these are these aren't silly objections. A lot of them are tenable and make sense. So I was wondering if you could just run through a couple of standard objections to the to the standard reading, if you will. Yeah. So one of them is is um, that if the story works, then it seems like the, the labor mixing story works. It seems that you really could only get a right to whatever the value is that your labor added to it. So so-called left libertarians will often find themselves attracted to that type of argument. Um, another one has to do with um, how we demarcate what we own, for example. So let's say that I, I, you know, um, I pitch a fence around a piece of land that's unowned before. And most people think, well, now I've, that's a way of acquiring the land that is fenced in. But if I think about what I mix my labor with, it's really only the exact pieces of land that the fence poles are sticking into. Right? Like all the rest is untouched by me. And so this labor story doesn't really lead to the conclusion that it seems to lead to, which is I, I have now acquired this plot of land. It just doesn't lead to that. It leads to you've acquired only the pieces of land that exactly this fence is holding. And the rest is fair game for other people. Those are two examples. Um, another one is actually the one, uh, a very powerful example that no that Nozick himself gave. So Nozick himself said, "I Nozick, I believe in this historical entitlement theory, and we need some story like the one Locke is telling, but that one is suspicious." And here's here's his example why he thinks it's suspicious. He says, "Imagine." So he's thinking. Sorry, one. Let me back up one second. He's thinking about this principle like if I mix something I own with something that is unowned, then I acquire the unowned thing. Right. which was I mix my labor with these plants and therefore the tomato that's growing is mine because I've mixed my labor with something that's unowned and that makes it owned. And Nozick says, that cannot be true. He has this famous example. He says, imagine I have a can of tomato juice and I somehow manage to make it like radioactive so I can, tra I can track the molecules wherever they go. Right, right. Yeah. Now I go to the ocean and I pour this can of tomato juice in, in the ocean I don't own the ocean. You don't own the nobody's. That's not nobody's property. I did own tomato juice. I've mixed what I owned with something that is unowned. So by Locke's principle, I should now own the ocean. But that's ridiculous. <laughs> Clearly, nobody thinks that. Right? So that's a counterexample that shows that it's not always true that if you mix something you own with something that is unowned, you thereby acquire the owned thing. So you thereby acquire the unowned thing. Sometimes you just lose the owned thing. And now we have the question, well, why would we labor mixing be one rather than the other? Shouldn't we just say that labor mixing is a way of losing your labor rather than acquiring land, tomato plants, whatever? And so these are various objections that are pretty hard to overcome. <laughs> the idea that did you do you own the ocean or do you, I think it's uh, said, do you own the ocean or do you lose your juice at that point, right? That's the question. Exactly, yeah. Well, clearly you've lost your juice, right? Like that's not really an open Oh, yeah, you've question. literally, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've literally yeah. lost your juice. No, right. it's not in the can anymore. Exactly. And it's not that you get to claim the ocean now. And so then if you cannot claim the ocean, then why would it be different from the piece of land and the tomato plant? Right? Why should we say those plants and that, that plot of land is mine because I've mixed my labor with them? Maybe, or maybe it's like the tomato juice case where, no, you just lost your labor. You've wasted, you're wasted a bunch of work. <laughs> well, I mixed it. So yeah, like, like the tomato can, you also mix that. So the worry here, I think, is that 
lock is clearly onto something to most people. It's a very intuitive idea. This thought that, well, wait a minute, this tomato wouldn't wouldn't be there if I hadn't worked for it, and so it's mine, not yours. But this mixing story cannot be the correct explanation of why why that is true or what he's onto. So the mixing story has to be a metaphor for something. It's like, but of course that that just raises the question: What's it a metaphor for? Right? Like, if philosophy is usually not in the business of giving metaphors and then going home, like we try to analyze exactly what what the truth is. And so, so we've just opened the question here. I think about what what the real insight is that Locke is is getting onto. Right, right. And be- before we get to to that, which I that, which I definitely want to get into, I, I just quick note on that. If if we grant, for example, right now that as you said, he, he's he's on to something, but necessarily it can't be literally that that mixing process. Just you know, back to the can of juice metaphor, for example. What what alternative theories, or or at least even if they were just partial answers to the question of that original act, uh, did, did people put out there? For instance, what was whether or not they came to a full conclusion or not? For example, what did, what's Nozick's ultimate answer to that problem? Did, obviously not that we just throw up our hands. Uh, maybe list a couple of examples of how some, pe- some people in their minds at least think they solved the problem. Good, yeah. So Nozick punts. <laughs> he just says, well, this is a big problem. We'll have to solve it, but uh, I'm going to go continue writing my book. That's roughly what he says. I mean, he doesn't say that literally, but uh, he does say like... Um, We'll need to have some theory, but some other time. He thinks we can solve this problem, but he doesn't have an actual solution himself. He just says it's a problem we need to solve, which is fine. Like you can't solve every problem in a in a book, you know. Um, others who've had different theories who are more critical of of this. So no, what Nozick is saying is, is we can come up with a story that gets you basically what Locke is talking about by a different route. But what that is, we don't know. Others have given different theories, but they lead to different places. So Hume is the is one of the more famous alternatives. So Hume uh, does not believe what Locke is saying is true. To him, um, justice is what he calls a convention, which is basically means just like when a group of people live together, um, there is no natural acts of appropriation. So they're not not like labor. Labor would be just by virtue of it being work, and the work is mine. I acquire the land or the tomato plant or what might it, what might it be? That's just a natural fact right. about people and morality and so on. So Hume rejects that. He says, that's not true. There are no natural facts about this. All we have here is we have people living together and they kind of discover or they hit upon rules that make them all better off. So they find out that if we treat everything as up for grabs, everything is something everyone can use and claim. We like, we often, we quickly run out of stuff. <laughs> and that's really bad. Like we all get hungry or poor and fight a lot, etc. And Hume says, we, we human beings are smart enough to figure out that if we have a rule by which we say, we'll just let each other, leave each other in possession of our goods, then all of us will be better off. And he says, this is a convention. It's something that sort of, it sort of grows out of our interactions much in the same way that like in a busy city, for example, people walk on the sidewalks and you'll see like these two different streams of people walking by, right? So like a, it might be on the right-hand side, it might be on the left-hand side that they're walking. It doesn't really matter which way, which side of the, of the sidewalk they're walking, but people will stick in their stream. And this is not a natural moral fact or something that people must walk on. The side. It's just, that's how we all get where we want to go. And so... The same thing is happening with property, Hume says. It's just we get what we want out of leaving each other in, in 
possession of our stuff. Because quickly we find out that if we start stealing and thieving, this, this world can be much, much worse than it is right now. Now, if you believe that story, then we don't have any natural rights necessarily that um, we can claim against other people or the government or society. So it's at least a question now whether um, you get the same political conclusions that the, that the Lockean thinks we get and about taxation or about redistribution, et cetera. So lots of people who like redistribution, who, like, who want more taxation, et cetera, they appeal to Hume's theory because they think that, well, if it's just so, this is just a social convention, then it's not as big of a deal to tinker with it or change, change the terms, et cetera. You can debate whether or not Hume would have agreed with that, but that's, that's where this often leads. Before I leave this point, did you want to put forward any other uh, alternative views to the ownership story? Or, or do you think we could leave it at Hume as, as one of the good, stronger alternatives and leave it at that? Well, yeah, Hume is definitely one of the major alternatives. Um, of course, there's many people who've said that, who've become very skeptical of property rights because there are no, they, see, they think there are no good theories about how it might be created or how it might be generated when there are none. So, um, you know, famously, like the people who think property is theft <laughs> would say, well, this is just a sim. This, these troubles are just a symptom of a corrupt institution. Um, more friendly to property rights and popular among economists, for example, is some version or variation maybe of the Humean story, which is sort of utilitarian in, in nature. It just says that a certain a certain set of property rules is sort of for the good of society or the good of mankind, even or something humankind. Um, and that doesn't necessarily re rely on this um, on this conventionalist story that that Hume is telling, which is people will create a set of property rights and rules out of out of nowhere if they find out that this is a good way to live together. Maybe you buy that, maybe you don't, but you could still then separate from that whole. Well, if there is some way we could create property rights, even from the top down or something like that, you're going to get a lot of benefits from it. Before we jump into the next stuff, I, I think that's actually an excellent time to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Boss van der Vossen. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bas van der Vossen today. So, so, so Bas, we just talked about a variety of things we started talking about what you know the a larger theory of property rights and ownership must have we talked about some standard readings of the locking conception of original ownership and, and, and property rights and things like that so some some counter uh, standard counter arguments and counter theories if you will to that and uh, i was just saying before the break that uh, let's let's get a little bit into what you think is is a more accurate or more proper reading of Locke's ideas of 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 uh, number one how you originally come to own something and, and number two of how property rights and ownership works so so i'll just throw it over to you L let's just get into that what what do you think uh provides at least um something that we can add to or even sort of uh 
you know, shift gears from the standard Lockean conception of property rights? What, what do you feel that misses or what do you feel at least should be added to? We started with this distinction between the sort of overall system justification for property and then this what we call individuation. So how individuals within a system like that set up particular claims. So I think we need to return to that distinction to make some progress here. When I say make some progress, I say that because I do think that these objections, like the one that Nozick is identifying, um, are good objections. They really, uh, well, put it this way. I think anyone who's not sort of ideologically committed to the Lockean story must be some way true, would look at those objections and say, wow, those are pretty powerful objections. We need to, like, I need to change my mind here. So I think honesty requires that even though I like this Lockean position myself, I would admit that that theory is in deep trouble. That doesn't mean I have to give up on it, like Nozick didn't give up on it either. Um, and so the challenge, that's just a challenge, right? It's just figuring out like, okay, what if that's not what's going on, they were mixing literally, then what is it that is going on? So to return to that distinction between overall justification and individuation, you start with this, or you have to start with an overall um, particular, so an, so an overall general story about why is it good, a good idea for people to have particular rights over particular things. Now Locke himself makes a bunch of comments on this, which are, I think, very interesting and prescient. He talks about how um, when you protect people's labor, so you give them rights over what the things that they produce. It's really, really like it's really beneficial. <laughs> this creates tons and tons of value. He has some judgment, some estimations in the second treaties where he says it's like ninety nine percent, but maybe closer to ninety nine point nine percent of all value in the world comes from people working, not from natural resources. So in a way, he thinks like this idea of like, well, how can how come you guys like how come some people have a lot of natural resources at their disposal and others though that's a sideshow that's really not where the action is the action is who's like who's in a position to do productive work so that's part of the story here which is as an overall idea you want to be able to you want to have people be able to protect by rights the work that they produce especially if it's valuable work and the Lockean prediction, which I think, I think holds up pretty well under scrutiny, is that if you do that, we'll all be better off. So that's the overall story. We want to have some sort of system in which people's labors are protected by rights, private rights of property. Now, that just gives you the general story. That doesn't tell you still anything about how individuals own particular things. And so once we have that general story, then you could have some labor mixing type of theory that you plug into that. And now the story is not that I own the thing I produce because I've mixed my labor and that is just sort of naturally a type of thing where I get to acquire the things I've mixed my labor with. Because we heard from Nozick that that story is false. But rather it is, well, since we need a system in which people's labors are protected, how can we make sure that particular people acquire particular things. Well, a simple or natural suggestion would be, well, just given those particular things that they work for, that gets you everything you want, right? And so I think you get now out of this, a theory that is exactly the same as what Locke said in terms of its conclusions, but it's, it works backwards, right? So it's not because my labor is special, when people start working on things, 
they create through the labor this whole property system in which, well, it turns out that, of course, the whole system is people get what they work for. Because each of the individual property rights is justified individually by people's labor being special. Rather, it's the other way around. We need a whole system in which people have some type of protection for what they work for. And so reasoning backwards from how that whole, situa- whole system is supposed to work, well, people get claims over their, right, over their labor, not because their labor is special, but because a system like that is really special. And, and you noted that when, when you think of it like this, that and through this interpretation, and this understanding, a lot of what some people consider sort of the oddities in Locke's thought at that point become more like provisos of, of the thoughts. Like, for instance, I had a note here, like, like the like addressing the idea that people must leave, uh, quote, enough and as good for others, things like that. Mm-hmm. You said it starts to make a lot more sense through this lens that you you sort of just introduced here. So maybe we can get it. Maybe we can get into that proviso at least. Right. So that's a very notorious uh, part of of Locke's theory. He said he says that people can acquire things through their labor at least as long as, long as enough and as good is available for others. Um, of course, there's a cottage industry of, uh, of philosophy articles and books even dedicated to figuring out what exactly that might mean. <laughs> what is enough? What is as good? What, and how does it limit what we own? Like, if I really own my labor like I own myself, like I don't own the rights over my body, there is no enough and as good proviso, right? like, limitation. So why would it be different if I... If this labor theory is true, so anyway, you can see that how that would uh, kick off a storm. I contributed to the storm myself. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but anyway, um, part of what I think is going on when Locke is saying that is he's saying you want a system of property to be good for everybody. That's the whole point. That was the system-wide idea that we're all better off if we have a system of property. In part because this just makes people wealthier, but also because it allows people to make themselves better off by working for the working like, to make a living, and that's just I think an important part of of life is that we get, we can make a living. We don't have to ask anyone's permission for this. Uh, it's a sense of freedom is involved with that, and Locke is pretty clear on that. I think so. The enough and as good proviso, as I see it, is is supposed to be a guarantee that. The system of property cannot exclude some people from the labor market or from ownership systematically. Because if it does that, it's just not, it's, the whole system is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. Then it's benefiting some people at the expense of others. So some people get to own a lot of stuff and then other people have to just sit on the side and beg or get by on government assistance or what, it, what might it be. Rather, you want to have a whole system that is one in which everybody can make a living by their labor and will get rights protecting the fruits of their labor and, and so make themselves and people around them better off in that way. How, how do we connect some of his other thoughts on this on this subject? Uh, for instance, the one where, where he talks about, you know, that things shouldn't go to waste under someone else's possession. I think this is also slightly connected to what you and I were quickly chatting about about the break where there's sort of like a, a productivity dimension to this whole thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Locke, I mean, Locke himself makes often appeals to Christian premises here. Um, he was himself a very religious man, um, but you don't need to appeal to him. In Locke's view, he says that God, that God created the world for people to enjoy and to to benefit from and you know, to improve their lives. And so if you have uh, people wasting things, the example he uses is, for example, harvesting a lot of, uh, like a lot of fruits, storing them, and then you can't like then letting them rot. He thinks that's really wrong. 
so you don't get to claim property rights just to sort of exclude other people from it and not benefit yourself because that's really contrary to god's will we were made for people to enjoy and what you're doing is taking them away from other people to enjoy and not enjoying them yourself now you can you can believe that story or if you don't want to base a theory on god um, you might say something like again which the story i was telling earlier which is Property rights are supposed to be for the benefit of people, for everyone. And so if you have wasteful activities, um, the use of resources that aren't really good for human ends or valuable ends, period. Those are not the kind of things you can, you can justify property rights around. So, well, take a lock, take Nozix tomato juice example, right? So why is it that even though I'm mixing my can of tomato juice with the ocean, that I lose my tomato juice and not gain an ocean? Well, one story is that it, this is just wasteful behavior. You don't want to reward that with property rights. Because once we start rewarding prop, wasteful behavior with property rights, we're going to incentivize a whole bunch of wasteful behavior. And once we do that, we get more of it. And the overall system is just not helping people to live better anymore. So that's... That's one way you can deal with that um, particular example, why it explains why Nozick's case is not a case of appropriation and why something like a waste proviso would be a natural part of a Lockean theory, I think. And connecting a couple more ideas, text, I think we just touched on it. You know, um, we talk about the idea of waste and especially things that are avail available to us, like in the environment, like an ocean, for instance. You know, there are some people that basically say, look, Locke's idea of property rights are ultimately in conflict or opposition to the well-being of the environment as a whole. For forget about forget about other people for now, just like the environment, right? Because this is something obviously people value and, and, and that makes sense that they do. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Clearly, uh, in, in, if, if I... Uh, read one of your papers correctly, uh, you, you don't actually think that they're in conflict or opposition, or at least not as much as other people say they are. I think a lot of people, as you said, there's been a lot of parts of this conversation you said that seem very intuitive to certain people. And, and this is something that would seem intuitive to many people, especially ones that care about the environment. Well, there's got to be some sort of limit to your property system. Otherwise, you're going to for, mix your labor by, you know, <laughs> setting fire to acres of land or something. So so, so what, why, why is this not in conflict or in opposition in your mind to the Lockean ideas? So lots of environmentalists, um, today and for a long time, consider um, private property and market economies to be sort of in straight, straightforward opposition or conflict with the environment, environmental concerns. So if you're a good environmentalist, you care about nature, you care about the world, not, you know, overheating or going to, going to crap, then you have to in some way, shape or form, be, op be an opponent or a critic of the market. And this Lockean theory is supposed to be or as often seen incorrectly, I think, is a theory that's very friendly to market economies. Now that is, I think, a mistake, like you indicated. I think that's not true at all. Um, so one place in which you can see this very clearly, I think, is in the, uh, to, to use a, as a case study is um, our water rights. So rights over water in the, uh, in the American West. Gotta give you a little bit of background in terms of water rights to get this discussion clear, but anyway, so. The United States um, has most of the research rights are, are based on the English common law for obvious re historical reasons, came over. Now, in, in terms of waters, we talk about rivers and streams is what we're talking about. Here. Um, the English common law holds that basically people who live on a, on a river or on a stream have a right to, they can use the water from the stream, but they cannot use, they cannot use it or change it in a way that alters its natural flow. That's the that's the doctrine, the natural flow requirement. 
So what you can use it, say, for um, watering some of your plants in the, in the yard, right? Or you can use it for uh, cooling a machine if you need to cool the machine. But what you don't get to do is dam it off and just re or redirect the whole river so that people downstream have no river anymore. But you cannot use so much that their street, that their sort of plentiful river that they use for navigation, et cetera, has now become a trickle. Right? So that's a rule that makes a lot of sense in places where it rains a lot. <laughs> Um, where the rivers are pretty full and people can sort of use for their own economic or um, residential purposes. They can use water from the river without actually changing the natural flow. But once settlers sort of started moving in the West in the, in the United States, they came into places like Colorado, Utah, and Nevada, California, where water is much more uh, scarce. And there, a natural flow requirement basically is a prohibition on use. Because any use of, of, a, of these streams basically changes the natural flow. Now, if nobody can use water from rivers or streams, that basically means nobody can live there because there is not a lot of water to go around. That's the whole problem. So that's an issue, right? So they changed the rule. And what they changed the rule was very much along Lockean lines, which was the first person to take the water out of the river has a right to use that much water as long as it's used as long as it's for beneficial use, socially beneficial use. So you don't get to just sort of... Um, Start a water collection of barrels in your garage. Yeah, exactly. Or just <laughs> redirect it away so that people downstream who you have an argument with now don't have any water anymore unless they pay you something like that. Right. right. So you don't... Which people might try to do if you not, if you let them. <laughs> so you don't get to do that. Um, but if you use it for irrigation, say, then it's fine even though people downstream might have less, significantly less water to use. And so we have this whole system of rights, which is a seniority rights system. Basically the first person who ever came there in time to appropriate certain water has a right to use that much water. And then the second person is second in line to use that much water and so on and so on. And so for example, when a drought comes, you start at the back of the line, those people are the first who have to give up their use. All the way. And then the first person is the last one who has to give up their use. Now, this solved a lot of problems. It solved the initial problem of not having to deal with the English common law anymore. But it was coupled with this no waste component that Locke had, which is you cannot waste the water. And that included you cannot have a right to um, have water remain in the river, meaning nobody could have a property right over water in the river. It can only be property rights over water that gets taken out of the river. So the only way you get a right over, over water is by taking it out of the river and irrigating it or using it for, for industrial cooling or, I don't know, filling up a, water, a swimming pool like people in California here like to do a lot. And you can see very easily how that, how that will go, right? If everybody can only acquire water by using it and taking it out of the river, well, everybody is just going to take water out of rivers. <laughs> and so you get all these, well, we know a lot of cases, right? You get a lot of famous cases where rivers are just completely dried up because so much water has been redirected. Los Angeles gets its rivers, gets, some, gets a bunch of its water all the way from um, a lake, which is in a, close to Lake Tahoe or something. And it's basically dried up as a result. You know? um, in the meantime, here people have swimming pools. Well, it never rains. There's a whole movie about that, Chinatown. Right, yeah, exactly. Palm trees, like Southern California is full of palm trees. Palm trees need a lot of water. It makes no sense that there will be palm trees here, because you're basically living in the desert. Anyway. So here we have a case, right, where people use this Lockean system, you appropriate water for productive use, 
take it out of the river. And the result is no more fish, no more aquatic life, no more, no more plants and environment, real environmental damage. This fits the story that we were talking about, right? This popular story. So you have, on the one hand, the environment. And on the other hand, you have sort of the market economy or the lucky and property story. And they're just enemies. So how do you protect the environment? Well, you roll back property rights. And this is how many governments have responded to. They make waters, um, like they, they make them public, inherently public, et cetera. And so they limit how much they can be appropriated, et cetera. They, they either regulate it or, or they completely take it over and make it public property or, or they stick exactly. their hands in regardless. Right. Yeah. So lo- lo- lots of places have minimum flow requirements, regulations that are requirements that a certain amount of flow is left in. And you cannot appropriate all, more water above that point or inherently public cases in which the, um, you just get um, regulatory or like bodies that supervise water use and, and, re- and regulate it in various ways. Now, at the same time, there's also been um, private environmental groups, associations that have pushed back against this. And what they've been trying to do is they said, you know what we would do? We have money from our donors or from you know, people who support us. And we would love to buy some of this water, water rights, because they're for sale. You can transfer these. Right? Farmers can sell them. And you want to start a factory, you need to buy some water rights. These are tradable. We'd love to buy some of these water rights and just use the water to remain in stream so that the environmental um, damage can be undone a little. The salmon can continue to swim, etc. Now, the law prohibited this because it considered that wasteful. But that's not part of the Lockean story that this is inherently wasteful. What the Lockean story says is that if it's wasteful, you shouldn't you shouldn't reward it with property rights. Right. But it doesn't say that environmental uh, protection is wasteful seems to me pretty clearly that it's not wasteful. It's a good idea to have, have decent environmental, um, well, to have a surrounding, have an environment that's healthy and, and, and beautiful, et cetera. So what you want is you want to actually not roll back the property rights system. You want to extend it. You want to extend it into allowing these groups and individuals to buy water, to leave it in stream, because they want to protect it. And so in states where they've allowed this, there has been a bunch of uh, organizations that have actually done this and have done this quite successfully. And they've bought up a bunch of water rights to protect the rivers and streams and, and you know, have, have plant life, have um, animal life return in these, in these streams. So in Oregon, for example, there's, uh, there's been quite some good success, success stories with this. And I think that's the, sort of back to your point that when when viewed this way, you know, Locke's thoughts on, and, and sort of his additional thoughts on, on his basic system aren't, again, looked at in this way. They aren't looked at oddities anymore. They're looked at as sort of like, uh, you know, no provisos or sort of qualifications, if you will. Right. And uh, so I think what what people miss who then say the block, the lucky and property story or the market economy is is hostile to the environment. Is what they miss is that this was not a case of too much property rights, but it was a case of too little. So. It's a very bad idea to have property rights only for environmentally damaging activities and not for environmentally healthy activities. That's bad because now you're encouraging only the damaging activities and not the healthy ones. And so you can you can go both ways. You can just get rid of property rights on both ends of the story, but that's probably not a great idea. Or you can extend them so that you can have the environmentally uh, sound activities or the protecting activities also protected and incentivized with property rights. And when and in places where that actually has happened, 
the results have been pretty encouraging, I think. But, but I think what's what's key to note here about the, the, the ideas you're bringing to the table and the way you go through Locke's thought process is that a, a lot of people who do sort of use that that slogan, oh, well, you know, this is a case of not enough property rights. Uh, it, you know, it should be a case of more property rights. That'll solve the problem. I, I think, uh, I'm not saying everybody, but, but many people in my mind are at that point still uh, presenting uh, a thinner version or a thinner story or more caricaturish story of property rights than you are here. So I think key, to, at least definitely for me to take away from this conversation with you so far, is that indeed there are many cases through what you were saying that, you know, it's not that this is a case of too much property rights, it's actually a case of too little property rights. But again, it's important to keep in mind what you're, what everything we've just talked about together today, which is you're presenting sort of that wider and more complete view, at least in my opinion, of the Lockean property story. And I think that that's very important to understand. Yeah, right. It's, it's a, well, thanks. <laughs> um, I, so I, I obviously would agree with that. And I think in this particular case, um, having that broader sort of system-wide view where you want property, a system of property to be one that is sort of good for society, that allows you to see that, well, we're not beholden to any story about labor mixing and can you even mix your labor with water that stays in the, in the river, et cetera. This gets complicated very quickly. But once we take that broader view, it becomes pretty easy to say, well, there are a bunch of values here, some of which are economic and money related, and some of which have qualities like environmental protection has. And a good society protects all of these not just some of them. And so a good system of property rights should be adjusted to, or should allow, have the flexibility to incorporate and protect all of these. Yeah, like I'll give you an example. Like I've heard a lot of people sort of take the idea of uh, like let's just say hoarding for lack of a better term and, and run with it right you know they'll start with some sort of idea of of um, natural rights property theory talk about how I have a right to do x y and z then they'll talk about and if and therefore and they connect the dots you know so it, it not only is it justifiable if I decide to as we were sort of saying earlier in our conversation take all the water from the stream and create a, a barrel of water collection in my garage not only can I do that it's actually good and here's why and people kind of tumble down that hill and, and go off in a direction at least I personally view is is, is kind of silly but again like you said when you add this sort of bigger story to this whole thing um it becomes a little less cartoony especially with with the the you know the qualifier of the productivity and social use and you actually have to be doing something with this stuff I think it's all very important to keep all that in mind so I think it's, it's a very good view of it I I do have um one more question our time's winding down a little bit here before we go to our formal wrap-up uh but that question sort of is, and I know it, it could be a couple of hours and many hours unto itself, so to, to, I'm not asking you to solve every problem with this um, here, but it's, it's just because I want your sort of parting thoughts on it uh, as we wrap things up here. So, like, you know, throughout our conversation, we've been talking about, uh, you know, uh, people mixing things with labor, you know, people's person and things like that, you know, people owning themselves. And there's like a very big personal dimension to this whole thing. But I'm just curious to know, you, you being an expert on Locke and, and into his writings and things like that, common law and the type of legal systems we live with since that time and since many of the thinkers even that followed him have changed so drastically since then. So I'm thinking of something like how when we go from people mixing their labor into things and moving to here now where in some jurisdictions or countries a corporation is considered a person, just gen generally speaking, what do you think a lock would would say to the kind of way that you can own property 
today. Like, so for instance, you and I could start a limited liability corp and own a bunch of things, but not really own, own things ourselves. And again, I know I'm, I'm not asking for some sort of you to lay out a complete theory here or solve every problem because I know I'm throwing a, a big one out there. It's broad on purpose. I just sort of want your your thoughts just when I throw that at you, what you think of. Well, yeah, it is a big question. <laughs> um, I, the honest question is, the honest answer is I don't know what he would say. Um, I can take a rough couple of rough guesses. I mean, I think he would say that um, compared to his time, societies have become much, much more open um, and encouraging and welcoming to lots of people using their labor in productive ways. Um, women, minor, ethnic minorities, um, African-Americans, obviously, in, in especially in the United States uh, context. And I'm pretty sure he would have welcomed that. Um, he's quite clear in some of his writings that he thinks that a good society, what a good, well, what a good, uh, a good leader, a good political leader would do is try to get as much uh, productive labor harnessed in society as, as they can. So he, he opposes, for example, um, imperialist expansion because he says, look, more land is really not, not doing much for us because he thinks all the value comes from labor, but more workers will. And so he's, very pro-immigration, for example. He says that's just more that's just more valuable labor that we import into a country. You got great idea. So I think he would he would be happy about how our societies have sort of freed up the labor force or the labor powers of lots of people compared to his time. Um, so women going from from the home into the workforce is just very beneficial. Um, I think he would be not very happy about our stances on immigration. <laughs> Uh, we're keeping out valuable workers that could be doing all sorts of good. Of course, we have lots of uh, property laws in our society that um, many of which are sort of famous that are more have more to do with rent seeking and special interest than they do with anything that Locke was talking about. So you know, people know about these sort of Mickey Mouse rules that Disney uh, that Disney famously sort of lobbies Congress for that is like the copyright or like intellectual property right protection on the on the imagery of Mickey Mouse just keeps getting extended every time just about when it's about to run out you know so presumably he would not find, be a fan of that <laughs> uh, yeah those are some initial initial thoughts well, it's, it's about that time. We're, we're going to head to our formal wrap up here. So in every episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately is the last word to try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of many of the questions we went through. So let me ask you, what do you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on, on your thoughts of the larger ideas of property rights and, and everything else we've been talking about? In all, in all we've, we've discussed, if you hope someone takes away one or two or just you know a few things from everything, what would that be? Interesting, yeah. So, um, so two things, and I'll include one thing maybe that we haven't talked about so much. Um, so I think the main point I think is that Locke really has an insight about property rights that it is, it's about protecting and rewarding people's productive labor. And for him, and I think this is a point that Hume, for example, really agrees with, is society is just not going to be a great place to live in unless we do that. So the more we move towards rules that um, reward people for not doing productive labor, um, the more concerned you should be. I think the more we move towards a society in which people get rewarded for not being productive citizens, the more concerned we should be. 
And the more we move towards a society where people are rewarded for productive um, activities, things that make themselves, but also people around them better off, that's good news. So that's one. And this, the other one is the point that I haven't made so much, we haven't talked about so much yet, but I think is an important one that Locke makes, which is when he says your labor, you own your labor, you know, your labor is part of you. He's making a point in part about productivity, but also in part about this stuff is personal. So you could imagine, for example, this is just a sort of fanciful philosophical example, wouldn't work in real life, of course, but you can imagine it, like, you know, a society could have could reward productive activity by saying everyone gets sort of the next person next to them's contributions. <laughs> so I get your productive work and you get mine or some or some circle around. But that wouldn't incentivize us in the same way because you don't immediately get your own rewards. But we could see something like I won't work as much unless you work as much and you don't work. And so we can get around and we still get it. Then. Even if that fanciful example would work, which it won't, but even if that would work, um, Locke would still say that, that, are, that won't, that's just a bad idea for a different reason, which is your labor is yours in a very personal way. Meaning it is part of who you are as a person that you express by, by your work. We often ask when we meet a person, like, so what do you do for a living, right? Like we want to know what work they do. And that defines a little bit of who they are. We, there's good psychological and anthropological evidence, for example, that this is true across cultures, that people think that the objects that they create in some way are connected to them, they're theirs, they use the same words, they always use possessive locutions, so the same words that they use, for example, to describe their hair or their, their body parts and so on. They will also describe those words to refer to their possessions. And so it's not a coincidence, I think, that it's a good idea to protect people's productive activities, because what we're doing is rewarding people and protecting parts of themselves that they put out there to the community for others to enjoy, but not unless it's also good for us, also good for us. And this is an idea of mutual advantage, I think, that you get early on in Locke already. So what really helps is making people able and encouraging them to do things that are not just good for them, not just good for other people, but do those things that are good for other people and for them at the same time. I think we'll leave it there. Boss Vandervossen, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 